Um, Robbie, I see you're driving. You want me to start this off or do you want to start off? I'm still driving, I think. I'm still driving. Okay. And that's why I'm giving you, that's why I'm giving you time to okay, fair enough. refresh um, yourself I, and give him time to get home. You know, you know, the studio of Ian and Steve's day was vastly different from the studio that endured after they went to jail, even right. though I think it was a slower metamorphosis. And when you walked into the studio of the seventies, you were walking into this, this ridiculously magical place. Oh, Scott Bromley, love Scott. He was the architect. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you were walking into this really magical place and it was fantasy land. And anyone who was picked from the outside walked down that wondrous hallway entry with the beautiful big chandeliers and you pay your entrance and you check your coat and you'd hear the muffle from the doors. And as soon as the doors had opened, the music would blast and you were enveloped by this, this, I don't know. It was like this all encompassing mood. Um, it was total abandonment. You had the usual suspects that you would find at any bar anywhere, but there was an element of over the top that didn't exist at every bar everywhere. And I think that's what made studio special, whether it was the drag queens or the naked people on during the week, uh, you know, Thursdays and Sundays were famously much more uh, gay influenced than the weekends. The weekends were perhaps more celebrity influenced than some of the weekdays. You know, but wherever, whenever you were there, it didn't matter. There was always a touch of magic. You always ran into the possibility existed that some movie star could buy you a drink and hit on you that night right? or whatever, um, you know. Uh, and everyone was on equal footing. And I think that was probably the most interesting aspect of studio. People who could have. Um, you know, push the VIP buttons, as it were. They were right in the thick of it with everybody else. They might have had a special little VIP couch where they sat, and there was a little stanchioned-off area, and, you know, every, but John Q, everybody did not go and sit on that couch. But on the dance floor, we were all equal. We were all the same. Incredible. I remember one night I had to chase Halston around the dance floor for forever because he borrowed my tambourine and he wouldn't give it back to me. <laughs> that's crazy. But that's what you had in studio. I know, I know, you know, Steve Rebell had, because Nicky Siano always tells me his, his take on it before it happened. He used to, Steve Rebell would come to a gallery and he would tell Nikki, that he had this ideas in his mind that he wanted to have these stars in a place. So this was something that was projected for a while. Nikki told that me while he had uh, Enchanted Forest or Enchanted, Enchanted Gardens in Queens. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Ian was involved in that a bit as well, but on the administrative business end, not the not the creative end. Right. And, and oddly enough, I well, too oddly enough, I was always at. 54, whether I was going to meet friends and dance, there's Roy and Bobby De Silva, uh, the lighting guy in the booth. 
um, whether I was going to meet Roy or going to meet friends or there for a party or to promote records or whatever. Uh, and one night I happened to be there early with Roy and Michael Overington, the manager, asked if I was going to be around and would I mind filling in a coat check because he was short. So that's the only night I ever really got a paycheck from 54 was when I worked the coat check. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. wait, wait, not even from the wait, wait, not even from the check, probably from all the tips. <laughs> I'm telling you, those were some uh, the check was nothing. <laughs> the tips <laughs> right. Tips were amazing. I kept saying to Michael, do you need anyone at Co-Check tonight? <laughs> yeah, you didn't want to do lights. You want to do Co-Check. Could you imagine just taking home one of the um, one of the minks or, you know, somebody coming in one of those fancy coats in the winter? Crazy, right? There was... And the Co-Check girls were great. I, I'm still friends with some of them from the day, the Harris sisters. You know, we just had so much fun. <laughs> It was, it was a fun place. Everything was fun about it. The bartenders were fun. Uh, Eddie Packin and Bobby Petty, who were the twirling bartenders. Do you remember them? They would spin. Mm -hmm. Too much of a studio frequent? No, later on. Later on. You know, uh, I wasn't old enough yet to go in at that incarnation. Time. Sorry? I wasn't old enough yet to come at that time. There I were a few that. incarnations. I think it was Mark Fleischman who took it over. Yep, when the second they, one. The boys went to jail. And then I know that uh, uh, Michael Fesco used to do Sundays at studio. And Mark Berkeley. He had a whole, had a whole big thing there. Yep. And Robbie used to work at studio simultaneous with when we worked together at the Red Parrot. And I'm going to take a wild guess. I maybe started at the Red Parrot 83 or 84 in that vicinity. Okay. Um, and I know that there were a lot of nights I would go visit him at studio. Right. Or stop by after work or whatever. But you weren't working lights at studio, correct? Or were you? No, I wasn't. I was, those, those were my music industry days. Just music. Just music. As a friend, or I was there promoting records or working on a press event or some such. Um, but by the time I started doing lights, I was working at New York, New York. So, and I went from there to Bonds when Bonds opened. Right. So I would go to studio after work or on nights when I wasn't working, but chances are pretty good at when at New York, New York. And I used to work, I used to tag off with another one of the lighting guys. So yeah, I'm, but I, but I never like got a paycheck for running lights at studio. <laughs> I did, however, work at the Palladium. Okay. I worked at the Red Parrot as one of the two lighting operators, lighting techs. And then I began working day crew the year that the Palladium opened. Right. So I would go on day crew during the week and setups and whatever, uh, and then run lights at night, Wednesday through Sunday at the Red Parrot. And then... I guess it was 87 when the Red Parrot eventually closed. Yeah, that was during Gail Sky King when she was playing there, if I remember. Well, actually, Gail was playing at the tail end of the Parrot even before. She barely worked for the Parrot. It was more when the, when uh, I forget the name of the family that bought it from Mer Jimmy Murray, um, who took it over, but it changed names. And then Gail and Timmy Regisford were working there a lot. In any case, um, I'm going to say it was right around 87-ish. Yeah. 
And David Miskin, who was the manager of the Palladium, asked if I would do Lights at Night. And I really didn't want to because the people who ran Lights were my friends and I didn't want to be taking away anybody's job. But by the same token, it was a wonderful opportunity to work on lighting equipment that was not common in clubs. There was Verilites which had just been invented a few years earlier for Genesis. They were the first robotic instrument. Um, it was the only permanent installation in the world. They were only used on big rock and roll tours up to that point. So the fact that you could even come close to them as a lighting person, I mean, it was just amazing opportunity. And the traditional lights, uh, the non-automated, that was run off of another touring console, uh, uh, an Avolite QM500 which was a huge touring console. It almost looked very similar to a sound mixing board. Right. Like if you look at a big 48 channel mixer board. Which is right and behind. And this was typical rock and roll fare. I mean, there was probably, you, you would be hard pressed to not name a big touring rock and roll group in the mid eighties that did not have a QM 500 as part of their equipment list. So that was that was, you know, really, I guess, kind of the draw to get into it and, and to work in that setting, um, working on that really cool stuff, working with the video people. And and so then I started and then the Red Parrot closed. And I kept, but, uh, but with Palladium, just like studio, you got Steve Rebell in there. Yeah, for a hot minute. Unfortunately, he got ill. After 87, by sure. the time I started working there at night, he already uh, <laughs> he already um, had started to have some side effects and started to suffer from uh, AIDS-related complications. And I believe he passed in 89. Yeah. Maybe. So yeah. Um, and then I stopped working at the Palladium. Uh, I stopped running lights. 90 and then i was just doing Verilite tech work and then i stopped shortly after that and started doing special events for robert isabel did you yeah. ever hear who robert isabel was no he used to do flowers with remy at studio 54 so he very much got his shot through 54 very close with ian uh and steve to this day um there's so much Robert influence in so many of the things that Ian does. Uh, and Robert, unfortunately, God rest his soul, also passed. Um, but uh, he was really the king of events in Manhattan. We did amazing, amazing events at the Palladium. Um, we did the 200th anniversary of the New York Stock Exchange. We did the 150th anniversary of the New York Philharmonic. We did Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown's wedding. Uh, we did holiday decorations for the Clintons at the White House. We did all the Vogue events, all the party in the garden. We, he did the, I was not part of, but Liz Garvin um, was production stage manager at Palladium and, and also worked with Robert. They did the Maria Shriver, Arnold Schwarzenegger wedding. Um, we did Jackie's memorial in in uh, Grand Central Station, if you recall that. Yes. Uh, and 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 that was certainly incredible exposure, incredible events. And Robert pushed the envelope, and we actually were the largest renters of Verilites in the '90s in the Northeast. 
because of these huge events that we used to do. Huge, huge. Uh, it, it, they boggled the mind. It's um, incredible how important that light installation is at those type of events. The, the level of what is spent to make that become a reality for those hours. You know, they're not even like, they're not installs that are permanent. These are just for that day or that particular thing that you're doing, whatever it exactly, is. Exactly, exactly. And, and the whole thing, um, you know, it comes up from nowhere and it goes away into trucks at the end of the day and it's gone, uh, even though it may take a week to set up. I mean, Whitney Houston, for example, that was a week setup before the event. The event lasted a day, took us a day to take it down and drive away. And that's typically how it is with these big mammoth events. But you've got huge trucks and generators and trucks of gear and miles of tents and you know it, it 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 it's it's quite phenomenal when you look at some of these over the top high end special events and parties um yeah yeah and and robert was a real a real master real master at that mm-hmm. i was very lucky to <laughs> are you kidding lucky it's like you stepped in you stepped in what i call knee high poop every time everywhere you are it's like everything that you're talking about, the clubs that you worked with, the people you were around, and they're all, it's like the creme de la creme, everyone. It, uh, I, I certainly feel very grateful that I have had such a wonderful life and I have encountered um, so many wonderful experiences and, and they keep repeating. I mean, when I started doing work in the field of architecture, uh, and putting entertainment lighting into architecture. Once again, I crossed paths with Ian because I had the opportunity to design some lighting in the Mondrian Hotel when he took that over in California. Uh, you know, and and just other little overlaps here and there. And and it's really you know again later on being involved with Matt Trinauer and Altimeter Films and documentary. You know, again that 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 overlap uh it is probably true that studio 54 is without a doubt the most famous club in like the history yeah well i think so and i think it also changed everything that we know clubbing to be from that point forward i agree i agree and and i am very grateful that i was in new york for the late 70s and the early 80s for that moment of time that I truly believe will be looked back at as a renaissance. Yes. There was so much art in every aspect. It wasn't just disco and dance music either. You know, it was the Lower East Side. It was the punk scene. It was the hip hop scene that was evolving. Rap was just beginning at that point. Um, you know, what's the first rap record that you remember? Mine would be Blondie. Yeah, pretty much me too. Yeah. Even before Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah, damn right. Yeah, as far as one that would cross into our world, yes, 100%. And, and, and there was such a renaissance. There was, you know, a whole other culture going down in the Lower East Side. There was art. There was fashion. There was, you know. Hang on. Hearing. Hang on. You got to, yeah. you know, we know today they see New York City as gentrified. 
Back then, it was not gentrified in New York City. It was wild. That's what you have to paint the picture. You got a lot of people are listening and watching this and, and hearing you. And, you know, it sounds like you're explaining Disney World. Because that's oh, not the scene. kind of was it away, Letty. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I tell people all the time, just taking the train was an event in Manhattan at night. Pretty much. Pretty you know? much. Especially being a woman. And I got to give you a lot of credit. A woman doing tremendous things. Not like she's, you know, she's not a secretary. This is a woman that's designing things. She's in, she's hanging out with all the best people. She's around it all. You I know, was, I was look, very, very fortunate. There was very a powerhouse fortunate. of women at that time. You had Judy Weinstein, Marsha. There was, there was Jane Britton at Columbia. There was, there was powerhouse women that were controlling the game. And she doesn't say too much about that, but she is a powerhouse. So, you know, oh, get your pen and paper out, people. Take notes. You know, she thank knows you. what she's talking about. She and lived there, it. There were, there, there were most nights I remember, most crews I was on being, you know, the, the only gal. Being the only gal in the room. I think so. Time. Yeah. There lot, there are, thankfully, there are a lot more women in the entertainment business. There are a lot more women that are touring. Um, you know, it, it's come about, but I mean, back then there were really no women virtually in clubs. You had, uh, some that were in electrics in theater companies and in dance and off, off Broadway. And, and, and that's really where I met most of the women who were techs was through the theater world, uh, as opposed to through Clubland and the club world. Although I will say I recently shared some history with a friend of mine Ann Militello, who is a amazing lighting designer on her in her own right with an amazing resume and unbeknownst to either of us we shared a little bit of club history being in kind of the same place in the same time next to each other in the 70s and didn't know each other and didn't know it <laughs> which was kind of fun when you're you know retelling the story yeah because you know what happens you'll tell the story and someone says wait a minute i know that story but dude, everyone sees things differently. Everyone's peripheral vision who was around knows what went on, but how you viewed it to pose how someone else viewed it, it's, it's, still, it's still the same story, but told differently. It's funny. You get it. I could see that. Yeah. You get it. Yeah. You hear it. I've heard it from so many different people, people who experienced certain things over the years or they were around certain people. It's like, I knew those people, but I heard it. Or story differently. It's the same story from a different viewpoint. It's amazing. Well, and you know, I think that this is true for many of the venues that we would go to separately or together. I mean, take Paradise Garage, for example. Yes. If you were into the dancing part, you probably spent more time in the dance floor area. If you're into the social part, you probably spent more time in the lounge. If you were of the music industry insider group, you probably spent most time up in the VIP room that was next to Larry's booth upstairs. So there was just a whole different, ah, oh, there I am, young Marsha. There she is, the young lady she was. And, and I think that uh, each person could have gone to the same club at the same night and walked away with a different, a different perspective at the end of the night. Absolutely. Absolutely. But hopefully it was our job as people who are creating the party. 
that we're giving you a cohesive message. The DJ through the music, the selections, the momentum and the energy that the DJ has chosen to put it together in whatever order it is that makes that night different from all other nights. And the lighting person who has chosen to accentuate the music into a visual platform so that literally the best lights are that you see are when you're dancing with your eyes closed. <laughs> yes, very true. Very true. Some people have always remember about, say, for example, garages, dance floors, there's flickering lights. They always flicker. There's a lot of flickering going on, you know, where Saint had that more like you're in a trip, like you said, tripping on the moon, that feeling. So it's a different way, different musically, spiritually speaking. I'm going to have you explain a little bit better musically and how things in those days work as far as the difference in clubs and how say a place like garage or studio or later on the flamingos. Cause those are clubs that were at the same time going on or where you worked at New York, New York. What was the music policies with the way things rolled in those days? We well, know disco, we know caps on the dance music, but. Yeah. And, and I don't know of any quote, policy that was put forth to the dj as far as what they could or couldn't play i think i would rather assume the dj that was picked was picked to play because of their style like raul rodriguez i would work with him at new york new york i would work at casey jones at new york new york each had different styles both played music for that club which was a more commercial club it had a more generic bridge and tunnel, maybe a little older group on the weekends because it was a dinner restaurant upstairs. It was a little supper club upstairs. Um, you played more for that clientele. Regimes, you had a little more of a hoity-toity, less wild and crazy dancey uh, club where you had, um, you know, Barnum. It was kind of like all bets are off. You had trapeze artists and, and it was a lot more what we call bridge and tunnel you know, in the Jersey crowd that would come in and a lot more of the overflow at Barnum and Zenon for the people who couldn't get into 54 for whatever reason. Because 54, you know, the biggest attraction of Studio 54, I think, was whether or not you could make it past Mark Benegy and the ropes. Right. That was a big, big attraction. Am I going to get in it tonight? Yeah, yeah. And the overflow or the frustrated would then go further south and hit Barnum or Xenon. Now, the types of music that were played, I think, also changed from day to day and DJ to DJ. And again, some you had more commercial. I, when I listened back to tapes from Richie Kazor, I found his musical selections to be much more commercial. Yes, agreed. Than, than Roy's selections, for example. Um, Richie would tend to repeat records through the course of the night. They were hits. The dance floor was full. He was doing his job. He was keeping everyone happy, but he was catering to a crowd that liked that as opposed to Roy, who was catering more to a gay crowd on Thursdays and Sundays, who was playing and was resident at Ice Palace, both on Fire Island and the new Ice Palace uh, that was built in 77, Ice Palace 57, just up the street. And so there you had a little more leeway. You still were going for a more commercial audience, 
in the city than you would at, say, Flamingo or the Saint or Fire Island. Respect. But it was a little bit of a different style. It had maybe more of a musical trip, more of a beginning, middle, and an end to the evening rather than a more frequent rotation of the hits, which other DJs would do. Both highly successful, both catering to the audience that they were playing to. Yes. And very different and very, but very same in a way. Now, Haraz, for example, was also had one foot in rock and roll. So you could get away with playing the cure at Haraz that you maybe couldn't get away with playing that at studio or, or at the same or at the garage, you know, now, and Larry could get away with playing anything because he did. And, and, you know, and of course, Garage, you catered to a wonderful house and R&B sound. And it was Buttermilk Bottoms. You remember T. Scott? Were you? Yes, Tyronius Scott. Sure, I know T. Scott. Great guy. Wonderful man. What a Better days. Yes. Better days, yep. And then Buttermilk Bottoms. Was Larry, did Larry Patterson play at Buttermilk? Yes, Larry Patterson played, yes. You know, and, and, and again, I think that even within that R&B genre, you also had the more commercial venues like the Buttermilk Bottoms. Yep. Even though it was more on the private scale, it was still a little more commercial than Paradise Garage was. Oh, big time. <laughs> yeah, big time. Yeah. Big time. And, and, and I think that that is, is what would at least have the DJ make their selection. Robbie and I worked the Red Parrot a lot. And again, that was really unique because when Jimmy Mary opened the Red Parrot, he also had a 40s swing style orchestra, the Red Parrot Orchestra. Joe Kane and the Red Parrot Orchestra, and they were resident, and he used to, they used to do shows every night, and they would break up the disco with a swing band set with a live orchestra. So that was kind of weird, but you had one group of people who came for the disco, one group of people who came for the swing music, 40s music, and another group of people that danced to anything and they didn't care. Right. And it was fabulous because you had this wonderful mishmash that, you know, maybe Robbie could get away with playing certain things at the Red Parrot that he never could have gotten away with playing at the same because of that little extra nuance that gave that club its little different hook different angle right right i think you said when you mentioned timmy and get i remember that i think red parrot later became 4d if i remember correctly yes i think that's the name 4D. the giulianos were the family that bought it yes from it was 4D. the giulianos because i and it's funny i i saw <laughs> i saw gail sky king a few years ago at an event, I couldn't believe I saw her. Another one, another what great lady. What a great woman and immensely talented. Oh and yeah, great. I really enjoyed working with her. I can see that she's got. She had a lot. She was hot at that time. She was on the way. Oh, indeed, and, and she was very big into production and studio mm-hmm. stuff. So when we were talking about getting into the eighties, you already had. Um, I think she used to come and hook an Effectron into the booth at the parrot and, and a digitizer. And, you know, we actually had uh, proper 
live soundstage with monitor mixer and, and effects and a front of house mixing. And that was a very sophisticated sound and lighting system at the Barrett. Yeah, I could see that because you had an orchestra too you had to deal with. So you had to have mixing for an orchestra and also a setup for well, the sound I, system. And the soundstage was built as a proper soundstage as opposed to when we'd have a band at the Palladium, we'd build the stage, we'd run the sound, we'd put everything in, and then it would all go away at the end. The Red Parrot had all of the... Uh, uh, skeleton built into the stage so if you had an amp and you were plugging it in your box was already in the stage floor boom you plug it in that was it bada bing bada bang it was you know really look this is the thing that the club goer does no idea what's going on what it takes a night they have no idea True. I'm sure people didn't realize also that the Red Parrot was designed, the lighting was designed by a very famous Broadway lighting designer, a guy by the name of Ken Billington. They wouldn't have known that. Yeah. Uh, you know, just as studio was used, also very famous Broadway lighting designers, Jules yep. Fisher and Fisher Morantz, Paul Morantz. Um, you know, and, and Palladium as well. They they also were the lighting designers of the Palladium. Um, not everyone did that. That's true. Not everyone did that. Uh, in fact, I think that Jimmy Murray and Stephen Ian were probably the only ones I'm aware of that used, like, top-name Broadway theater designers in their club builds. That's true, because at that time, when they went in to go set up studio, nobody in the light business would work with them. They had to go that direction, I think. They had to go outside the box, because the discos, the other discos were holding back. And, you know, you know pretty much strong-arming, the other owners were strong-arming not to have them open, because I think they realized that when they were going to open up studio, that was going to change the game big time. Well, uh, the smartest thing that Ian and Steve did when they took over a studio was because it was a studio, literally it was a television studio, it was a proper theater, the smartest thing they did was bring in theatrical minds to utilize the skeleton and utilize the building that was there. I mean, to bring in all those drops and all the things that were flying in and out, you didn't have to add an infrastructure. Same thing with Palladium. I mean, as you, as you recall, when you went to the Palladium early on opening, we had a disco, Queen's Disco, which was the house that was sitting in the middle of the dance floor. And there were five different sets of drops. So when you came in, you only saw half of the dance floor anyways. It was an 80-foot-long dance floor, and the furthest downstage drop was like at 40 foot. And one by one, we would reveal and go back, back, back until we got to the brick wall at the end. Till it got full, because otherwise, if you open up that room and it's empty, it looks cavernous. But that was all done in the bones of the building that was there, which was built as an old theater. And uh, the moving, the flying trusses that were over the dance floor that had the moving lights on them, those were added after the fact, but in the same fashion as everything that was in the old theater setup. So um, it, it was the right thing to do to utilize it as a theater space. It was also new 
and unique and certainly one of the huge wow factors that made studio what it was. And at the time it was the only club that had a moon that came into the, from nowhere and a spoon that fed it and went back and forth. And then they went away and then the sun came down and, you know, I mean, it's the only place that did that. You know, so I went to, you know, you mentioned about the Brooklyn museum. You guys did the, the, uh, the, um, when they opened up the exhibit for studio, were you there, right? Uh, the studio 54 night magic. Yes. I loaned the museum a number of artifacts that they used on display. And I was asked to produce the three soundtracks for the three different rooms. And I yanked Robbie into the project with me and the two of us worked together to produce the soundtrack uh, that were used in the three various rooms you said you saw the music the exhibit yeah i went to see it yeah it was excellent so the, the first room was the 77 78 room and that was uh featured excerpts from wayne scott who was one of the first djs hired at 54 and then the second room featured the two records the one that roy had done a night at 54 and then the one that uh, richie kazor had mixed also yep uh, and those were featured tracks and the final room uh, used a feature track from a Roy performance that actually the master reel to reel is also on loan to the museum and is part of that display. Yeah, I so saw you put, you gave, you, you actually loaned the uh, headphone of Roy's. Yep. I saw. Yeah, I worked with uh, the curator, Matthew Yokoboski, and uh, he I sent him a whole bunch of memorabilia and photographs and whatnot. And he picked what he wanted and he wanted the headphone and he wanted the BPM book and the uh, two reels and uh, one other thing, but we couldn't quite coordinate that in time. And it, it was what a delight to work with them. The exhibit now is, I don't know if the Toronto Art Museum no, Gallery has opened or not, but it's set up and it's ready to go in Toronto. Have that book. Let me see if we got the book. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah, I was able. You were able to get me that last moment with Roy in the the book, the Bible book. Um, but one thing I re- I saw in there about the spoon when you mentioned now the spoon and the <laughs> the moon and the spoon. Yes, there's a picture of Dolly Parton. I saw, and I think it must have came from a show or something. And I was wondering if they got that idea off of some movie or something um, before it went into studio. Do you know about that? Well, all I know is that the gentleman who designed the set piece, Richie Williamson, he would know where the idea came from. And I certainly could ask him at some point. Because I saw it, but it's so small. It was so small to the side. I'm wondering, I'm going. I have no idea. Richie Williamson was uh, designed many of the set pieces. And he is most notoriously famous for the moon and the spoon and um, wonderful man, a wonderful man. Uh, But, but I could certainly ask him and ask how that seat. I'm curious because I saw a picture of Dolly Parton sitting and she's sitting on, looks like the same getup that they use. Unless she was sitting in it because the piece. Yeah. Sitting in it. Yeah. Sitting in it. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's before studio or they got the idea or that was taken in studio because it looked like it was early seventies. Ah, who knows? I figured I just. Well, I certainly can ask Richie where he got the idea from to do it. That's incredible. That's, that's you remember that's everyone, easy one, Lenny. Everyone, and then I'll email you the answer and you can, uh, 
So I'll your audience special. at a later. You know, I'll do. I'm running. I'm running a special. Everybody who knows who <laughs> came up with it first, Studio or Dolly Parton. We'll have to find out later. We'll we'll get the answer to that. We'll ask the artist. He would know. I'm going to ask you now because waiting for Robbie to come on because I think he's still trying to get home. Um, people are intrigued with the saint as well. And I know uh, you know. Can you explain the build out for that? The steel elevated dance floor, all that being that you went there, worked, hung out, the whole deal. Well, Saint was originally built as a theater, and it was probably most famously known in the 60s as the Fillmore East, right. and promoted by Bill Graham. And when Bruce Mailman took over the building, the original entry into the theater remained the same. Um, what would have been the orchestra level, the mm -hmm. main seating, um, that it all was all removed. All seating was removed. The shell of the building remained. The balcony remained. Right. The dressing rooms remained, and they were converted into the locker rooms. The Saint. Let me let me preface for members of your audience that don't know. The Saint was built in and opened in September of 1980, and it was a private membership only men's club i'm not sure the exact numbers i think there was something like 1800 2000 people invited uh, first year as charter members of that i think there were less than 40 that were women i was one of those women who was a chart a charter member mm -hmm. uh they did not discriminate against women but this was a club that was built by gay men for gay men. So they really weren't peppering the membership rosters with anyone and everyone. They kept it quite exclusive to a predominantly Fire Island and heretofore the private men's club. The most notorious, of course, uh, was Flamingo, right. followed rapidly by 12 West, which mm -hmm. was a little more you know, across the board, where Flamingo was a little tighter membership club run by Michael Fesco. Any case, um, so they pretty much gutted the building for any and all of the main level seats, any mezzanine level seats. Uh, the fly rail system was there. You could see the proscenium arch, anything that was upstage or, or, or above you know, what would have been like going backstage from the proscenium arch. Uh, that is not a picture of the proscenium arch. That is a no. picture standing up, looking at the dome yep. from the main level. Um, and you're looking up at the outside of the dome, which was built as a geodesic dome. So if in your mind, you could think that you're walking in on the first floor and the dance floor was on the second floor and it was kind of floating on this hemisphere that was raised in the center of this cavernous theater where there were you know, some banquets and things that were built for sitting, but no theater seats as you would know them. Right. Um, and, and refreshments were served in what was the backstage area. Uh, the old fly rail stuff was still there, but it wasn't used as anything. As I say, the proscenium arch was there. 
Um, and this geodesic dome, uh, it was interestingly built the material in that if you were outside of the dome, like up in the balcony or in the photograph that you showed, it was a perforated steel so you could see into the dome. However, if you were in the dome, it acted as a reflective property so that the lighting show, which was inside the dome, used the surface of the dome to reflect off of. And in the center of the circle was a hydraulic. The first year it used to go up and down this ring, this huge hydraulic uh, tower with like a double ring of lights. And in the center of it was the star machine that was on a pedestal that would- I think it. I have something close. So let me show the dance floor okay. with, the, with, the, with the projector. Hang on, let me find it. Let's, okay. it's, it's what I can find. <laughs> okay. I'm not really seeing a good picture. It's, it's a little dark and grainy. It looks like we've got the heads, people's heads, on the bottom of the picture and on the right would be that lighting tower that I'm speaking about. Yep. And there's a little horizontal bar that's at the top of the tower. If you want to put your cursor on it, that's the star machine. Nope. Go down, go down, go down a little, down a little more, down a little more. Now too, ah, too far. Go to the right. A little more, a little more, a little more. Now up just a wee bit. That's the star machine. See that bar of white light that's above you? That's where the star machine sat on top of the platform. And if you go down from where your cursor is, you can see the ring. And it almost looks like the inside of an umbrella at the bottom of the lift of the mm -hmm. tower. If you go down with your cursor. Down. Keep going down, 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 down. Oh, and if you look there, you can see it almost looks like the inside of an umbrella. Yep going off to the left and right, and then around as it goes off to the left and right at the top of that angle is the circle of with lighting, various rows of lighting that went around the complete perimeter. And as I said, the first year that used to travel up and down, so you would start the night on the floor, and as the dance floor filled up, it would slowly raise, mm -hmm. and then they mirrored around the tower, and then it never moved after that. Because people always wondered who's, you know, we saw the Saint, some of us saw the Saint documentary that, you know, Robbie's in and stuff, but no one ever discussed who came up with this idea of doing this dome, this whole, who's, do you know who's behind that? Like who's. Well, I can tell you that the designers were Charles Terrell and Mark Ackerman, a guy by the name of Greg Ackerman out of Delaware built the star machine and was involved in the installation of all of the lighting. Um, Peter Spar designed the sound system, which by the way, Richard Long was also offered the job and he said that it was impossible to design a sound system because they didn't want the speakers shown. Right. Because, and as you know from you were in the Saint, the only thing that you saw of a sound system visible were the tweeters. And they were off of the they were off of the uh, the center tower. And that was it. There were no speakers that were visible. Peter had mounted them on the exterior of the dome. And part of the banquettes were the, the low end was built into the banquettes that was around the perimeter of the dome. Oh, okay. And it was the sweetest sound system that existed 
anywhere. It was one of the most acoustically perfect sound systems I have ever heard in my entire life. Really? Wow. Okay. It was a sweet spot in the Saint that you could play the from the most sweetest classical to the hardest dance, but it was a very sweet sound system. And Peter was very brilliant and very talented uh, sound engineer and sound designer. Why did I think that was Barry Letter and Graybar? I thought Graybar had something. Peter Spar worked with Barry Letter at Graybar many years prior, but this sound system was by a company called Entertech. Right, I remember you mentioned it. Right. Entertech was on Peter's bar, and that was his office that was over on Washington Street. Uh-huh. And Steve Daniel, Steve Daniel, who also did lights, uh, was one of the alternate lighting guys at the Saint um, in in ensuing years. You know, second season on, he uh, he and I both worked for Peter at Entertech, so we would go in and do maintenance on the sound system if we needed to. So you and you also you also worked on sound also the audio part too. Yeah. Good girl, look at you. Get your toy, get your toolbox out and your SPL meter and check everything out. We worked on probably one of the <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm embarrassed or not, but you no, know, don't be embarrassed. Tell us. One of the bigger jobs that Peter had, commercial jobs, was um was uh, and he he was a brilliant, brilliant sound designer, really brilliant. Um, and he was one of his clients was when Trump built Trump Tower. And if you go in Trump Tower, if you see very, very long, it, it, they're very hard to find because they were specifically built and designed to be camouflaged into that metallic finish that is ubiquitous throughout Trump Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, but by hand, the sound system that is in Trump Tower. I am one of two people who built it. <laughs> you, you are guilty. A, and I have a big scar on my leg to prove it. <laughs> you are guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. It was a sweet sound system. Yeah. Much different than Garage, that I can say. But now, Peter was involved with the sound system at 12 West, which was Barry Letterer and Graybar. Right. And also worked for a time with Richard Long, but Richard had gone off and done his own thing. Right. And Joe Zamor, who I had mentioned about the lighting design with Paradise Garage, before all of that, when you go back to his beginning, he worked with Richard Long in sound, which again brings that connection around to how everybody is interconnected. Love it. Robbie's back. He's he's gonna bring. Robbie's got the dog. Bring the dog in. Thank God, Robbie's okay. And Marsha has been educating us, Robbie Leslie, like no other. She is incredible. That guy, Simon. <laughs> Everybody, yeah, welcome back, Leslie. The best laid plans of mice and men, you know, often go awry. That's that's the deal. You know, not for nothing. This is like the best reason you could have come up with to be a roving reporter for the first hour. I personally <laughs> loved it. <laughs> I, I I listened to the whole thing from the car driving up, so it's been it's been great. We got to pick you up now, Robbie. Where 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 you start? Because we heard your Fire Island Sandpiper, and you got to take us now. You know, into your world because Marshall well, really broke it down. I'll, go ahead, Robbie. Before I get sidetracked or anything, because 
Marsha mentioned something in the when I was driving, and that was like uh, on the job training, and uh, that what popped into my head immediately was Bobby Vidritti. Now that little bit of a backstory is necessary. Um, when I worked at the Sandpiper, of course, it's a seasonal club, <clears throat> and uh, so when they closed at the end of October, I came back to Florida, which is where I would normally winter. And uh, I got a job at the Marlin Beach Hotel, which is uh, the poop deck. And I got the job as a pretty much to do sort of the sandpiper, the off nights, but it was tea dances, the off tea dances. And then I would work uh, the weekend nights with Bobby. I would do the lights. So I was um, an erstwhile light uh, operator back in the day. And um, you did lights so I would work with Bobby. I worked with Bobby uh like from first song to last and talk about, you know, being an apprentice and, and learning just uh, everything you need to know about how to entertain a dance floor, how to maintain energy, how to, how to break a room, how to um, peak a room um, and just all the techniques of mixing and the kinds of mixes that are appropriate for certain, certain types of builds. Um, so yeah, credit to Bobby because uh, truly, I learned more from him initially, you know, as far as not only what to do, but what not to do <laughs> in the business. Um, and so that's, that's been like solid gold for me. So here's the question now. Yes. Uh, so Bobby goes, I know Bobby's story. He gets a job offered of Trocadero from Florida, right? Uh, yes. I believe he went from Florida straight over. Yes. To, to the West coast. Where was it? So Bobby was playing. Did you meet Bobby in New York pre to Florida or you met him first in Florida? No, I met Bobby in Florida. In fact, he worked at a club. I was when I was still waiting tables before I got into the booth. I was working at a club called Tangerine, which was a very like progressive ahead of its time. It was, again, a restaurant in the evenings and then turned into a disco at night. And he was uh, I think he may have been the opening night DJ actually there. But he was one of the residents and uh that was owned by John Costelli, who later opened, or actually quite soon after opened uh, the Copa, which is a legend down in South Florida, right. uh, and and also uh, Fire Island for a short time. Uh, so Bobby, yes, I met in Florida and uh, knew him socially, but not very well. But then once I got into the booth, you know, we were best friends. And then from there. So now you learn everything from lighting and now you keep, now you keep going. Go ahead. Right. But you know, it's, it's a, um, I'm really grateful that I learned about lighting before I, before I really mastered my knowledge of mixing and music because the, so the two are so, at least in a good club, they're so intertwined. They're so interdependent. I mean, I've done guests. I've, I've never worked a residency with, with someone like this, but I've done guest spots in, other cities where the light man is, you know, like on his phone half the time and everything's on automatic or what have you barely paying attention to what you're doing. Um, which is so, so wrong. So inappropriate, especially for a guest DJ, which is you're supposed to highlight as not as opposed to just let it go. But, um, uh, that I think I learned a lot about energy and, and drama and that served me very well when I moved into New York city because the big clubs, that's what it was all about. Uh, like starting starting a trip, getting people excited. It was like 
you know, a great lovemaking uh, fest uh, and, you know, peaking them, reaching an orgasm, so to speak, musically speaking. Sure, sure. Uh, and then, and then a, a, an afterglow that would follow. And of course the New York clubs were famous for their morning music. Um, and that is an acquired, it's an acquired taste, but it's also an acquired talent for a DJ to be able to play, play that well. Um, it's all across the board, everything from like really dirty and not nasty music to the most beautiful heartbreaking songs, you know, ever recorded. And that's always for the, for the hardcore dancers they really like to spend the whole night at a club. That was like the dessert or that was like, you know, the icing on the cake to, uh, to have that special set of the night, you know, the last couple hours when the music was very personal. The DJ really got to shine, got to uh, express himself a lot more than your generic peak records, you know, the, the top 40 stuff. Uh, so working those clubs where I was doing 10 hours yeah, fourteen hours. What? Set. Wait a minute. Hold oh, on. Yeah. Let people know this. Let <laughs> people know this. Hold on. The two right. hour set, the hour and a half set, is not something we did back then. Absolutely. Oh my God, that would be such a slap in the face to to you know to say, well, we'd like you to book you to play a job. It's only it's only two hours long. You know, you really don't get to do or express anything. Uh, but you know, it was a very specific sequence of events. Uh, by that, I mean the clubs I got booked at that taught me uh, and made me made me capable, physically capable of playing these marathon sets. And the, the longest, my record was 20 hours, and that was a, a white party at the same. And not a single uh, repeated song in 20 hours. Um, but working at 12 West, which was pretty much a six to eight hour gig because they had skylights and the, the light would come in at dawn and people wouldn't dance much beyond say an hour or two beyond sunrise. Um, and uh, some of the fire island clubs that went after hours, but then the same, of course, was the great, you know, the great uh, granddaddy of them all, as far as long sets. And, oh yeah. Yeah. Then they would close at noon. They would close at three in the afternoon, you know, it time was, finish, uh, by the time you wanted to finish it basically. Yes. Yes. There, and it was still busy. They would not shut it until you were done. That's correct. That's correct. And it was a great deal of respect and a great deal of cooperation between management and the DJ and, and light person. Uh, it's exactly as you described. It was about, you, have you finished? Have you, have you uh, musically expressed yourself? And is the party complete? Uh, and so the management would come up periodically and, you know, sort of take tabs on how you were doing. And hey, Robbie, okay. how you doing, babe? Everything okay? They would call exactly. and say, is yeah. okay? You good? Anything drink? Anything? Yes, yes, right. Exactly. And And, uh, let me just interject also as people who did plan their evenings to go out to the Saint, once the Saint really did do real extended sets, it took that I'm going to go to Flamingo and arrive at two or three to a new level where you took your disco nap and you didn't wake up till four in the morning. That's right. And showered and got ready in the morning. Because And, and and the DJs, I know Roy would do this and we would talk about it. I'm sure the same with you and everyone else. You had a, a crowd that was your earlier crowd and then a crowd that was your later crowd that went into the morning music or, as we would fondly say, as soon as a good one would come on and say, now we're going to church. 
And then we'd really start some good R&B come on and right. tambourines would come out. Woo! Yeah, yeah. It was very much also at uh, that hour, very much more like a, a family hour. Let me well, ask a couple there of definitely quick... was a shift in the, the attendance. You had the early crowd and the later crowd. Yes. Well, then you had some that came for the first record and stayed till the end. <laughs> I used to particularly like the people that, because we used to play classical music, which was wonderful, uh, the first hour of the night on the weekends. And uh, to hear like a, you know, like, like a symphony by Beethoven or Rachmaninoff or what have you, uh, on that sound system with that light show and the stars moving. And it was, it was like, you know, it was spiritual. And uh, some people would come pretty much just for that. And maybe, you know, a couple hours after and, and they'd be happy. It really did set the tone very, very nicely in a very unique way. When I used to tell people that it was classical the first hour, they were like, is this a disco? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, it gets going after a while. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah. one of the signature records I remember coming from you or that particular club, the same, was Abba's Lay All Your Love on Me. That was like kind of, and I explained this to these new, the newer DJs that when sets were laid out, it wasn't just about music. The words and how words spoke one record after another would tell the story, how important that was. Absolutely. You know, that's like a lost art, you know, in a sense. And I think it should, we should mention right now, uh, and Marsha will corroborate this, uh, Roy was even, was probably the most involved in lyrics and uh, of any DJ I've ever met. And if, if, a, if a record, no matter how popular it was, was negative or had something violent or... Uh, you know, just disturbing in the lyrics, he just wouldn't play it. It was just off the, right. off the chart, you know, off the menu. You're absolutely right. And he also, oftentimes, I hear it in his tapes where the songs would almost ask questions, the next one would answer it. Or we, all, we always used to say we could tell what mood he was in by what songs he was playing because he really wore his heart on his sleeve. And the yeah. lyrics of the song told you what... what they told you everything you needed to know. It mm. told the story, as you said. There was definitely a story. Right. And beyond the lyrics, I think the tone of the song, just just the, you know, the sonic tones, uh, was it very, was it more hard edge? Was it more electronic? Was it more, you know, violins and, and you know, singing ladies in the background? Uh, you could communicate a great amount of emotion just by tone. Uh, as well as by lyrics, but it was all balanced out. That was a wonderful thing. I mean, how uh, how grateful I am that I got to play these mega clubs when they were the standard of the business of the industry, and Marsha got to do do the lighting uh, because nothing really exists, I don't think, except for one night installations uh, that could match it. But I mean, to think that this went on every weekend, right? And, a year yeah, on weeknights, even. <laughs> Yeah, for years. For, years. for sure, for sure. Yeah. We were yeah. spoiled. God, were we spoiled to have all this going on. And we actually had words in the songs and in the music that mm -hmm. you could follow and sing to if you wanted to. Something else yeah. that I don't hear so much if I go out in today's world, which I don't do very often. I'm old, but 
Oh, Marsha, yeah, you know, yeah, you're, you're just weathered. It's okay. She can still cut a rug and, and give us some lighting and she'll kick our ass right away. Side. <laughs> Watch me do this. <laughs> Right. Exactly. But, you know. but Robbie, did you have to when you know you were playing Far Island stuff and you know Michael Fesco was one of the hottest club owners in a sense and Richie Promoters, Carr, yeah. Well he owned Flamingo, yeah. Flamingo and he had you know 12 West. You had I understand Bruce Mailman opens up Saint. Did they come to you or you was it like we want you to come and play? How did that happen? What was the you know the back end? Sure. Well, I'll tell you. Um it's kind of interesting the way the way it actually played out. Uh, when word started getting around, I'll, I'll step back a few months that a new club was opening uh, in the Lower East Side, and that it was supposed to blow everything, you know, out of the water. Kingdom Come. Yeah, the hype was was so powerful. Everyone was like so fascinated, and you know, you give them a little teaser, and they they want more and more. Uh, and then when the, when the Opening date finally arrives, which was September 20, I believe, of 1980. Yeah, so. uh, the, the other clubs, I mean, it didn't take probably a month, didn't even take a month before the, this, like, mass migration over to the Saint. Uh, everybody just wanted this to be a member and to go there and dance because it, it was just so amazing. Um and, you know, I, I credit all the clubs. Flamingo was an amazing club. 12 West is still my favorite club and my favorite gig to this day. Uh, but, you know, that was the shiny new thing in 1980, the Saint, and all its amazing technology. Um, so they had spoken to Alan Dodd previously mm -hmm. uh, about being the opening DJ and being a resident at the Saint. So he, who was a resident at 12 West, he left of his own accord, uh, 12 West. And that was about the same timing that I had moved into uh, Manhattan and was, was looking for a permanent job and had given myself six months to either support myself as a DJ or think of something else to do. So uh, I, did, I did an audition at 12 West, but it, wasn't, it was because Alan Dodd had, had made a vacancy uh, because there were only two resident gigs available uh that opened the door for me to to be hired at 12 west and uh then of course the same but wait, opened. but tell me how hot 12 west was come on oh that was we, yeah it's it's funny because last night uh was the 41st anniversary of my first party that i did there and it was it was one of those make or break nights i i'd been working there a couple of months and uh and established myself but this was like a real party so this was like packed to the rafters and the club was of an age i guess by then it was almost five years old that the banquettes that rose up from the dance floor were all made of wood and of course being hollow they were very resonant well uh after five years they got a little give to them they got a little, a yeah. little movement They're so with it, they gave huh? So with this place like totally full and everyone like not only on the dance floor, like shaking it, but up on the banquettes, you know, like going, going to the music, uh, they started skipping the records. And this is early on. This is probably about, you know, let's say one in the morning. And I knew 
that if this continued, because, you know, a, a record skip is bad enough. A record skip in a gay club is a cardinal sin. <laughs> they, right. they never live down. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, so Tony Martino, one of the co-owners of the club, he calls up Peter Sparr, who is the, you know, the genius behind Gray Bar, and he said, get your ass down here immediately, and if you don't, you know, it's all over for you and for us. And he was there probably in 15 minutes, and he brought these big foam pads. So one by one, we transferred the turntables up onto these, these like, isolating pads, uh, and I played the rest of the night. And that saved me, truly, because as it was getting busier and busier, the records were more frequently skipping. And if they weren't skipping, you could hear them kind of vibrate, the needles yeah. vibrating in the grooves, ready to, ready to jump out. Uh, so, yeah, 12 of us was just a magical place. And, and uh, I wrote about it on Facebook uh, a few days ago. It was just that it was kind of an empty canvas when you went in. And what you did with the music and what the light man did with the lights uh, was starting from scratch and starting totally fresh. And the crowd was just such a devoted uh, group that loved to dance. They were in it for the whole night. It wasn't just a passing thing. Oh, let's go over, you know, for an hour or what have you. Let's just hang out for a while. This was like a, a you know, a commitment uh, for the night and they would all stay right through But they loved all the kinds of music, whether it's slow stuff, high energy, electronic, um, and they adored their DJs. They were very loyal. Let me ask you this question, Robbie. You know, the gay DJs in, in 12 West and Saint and Flamingos, okay? We always said played like glass. In other words, the mixing was seamless. And I've said <laughs> this many times where Garage was more about bam, excitement, boom, right. you know, like... Right. Thunder and lightning coming, a little Holloway screaming. <laughs> yeah. How, how, where did this style of mixing for you, this long overlay with this seamlessness really take for you? Um, I think, I think the, what really, uh, where I really picked it up was from Bobby and from Alan Dodd. Those are the two principles that, uh, that I, I really wanted to use as kind of my template that I, that I admired I liked their style. I wanted to uh, copy it and then put my own, you know, fingerprints on it. Um, but, uh, you know, of course you can't, you really can't compare anybody to, to Larry because it is Larry's uh, garage. It wasn't anyone else's garage. True. His style was such that um, uh, the, the jarring, you know, changes in tempo, it was kind of like the loft where, you know, he could play, David could play anything really and let the record run out. It was more about content. It was 100% content over, over flow. And, uh, you know, there are two schools of thought about that. Um, you know, looking back upon it, uh, the delivery is, is secondary to the, to the entire performance. Like, is it, is it uh, you know, what kind of entertainment are you providing? And, and Larry just knocked it out of the park. I mean, his, his sets are legendary. And critically speaking, yeah, uh, you can look at them and tear them to pieces um, on a on a technical aspect, but nobody can deny that people uh, had life changing, you know, experiences there on that dance floor, and will never forget it for the rest of their lives. Um, I, uh, you know, I had a different aesthetic 
And for me, like subtlety was, was kind of my game. And uh, if I could pull off, if I could pull off a blend that you could barely hear and you barely notice that, that another song had started to me, that was like the ultimate Russian and you get a, you know, you wouldn't get a cue until you actually heard a lyric or, or some kind of sonic cue that, that the next record had started. And uh, I apologize for my phone ringing in the background. Uh, but yes, um, you know, DJ style is, is, is what that's his stock and trade. You know, if it, if it appeals to the crowd, you're popular. If it, you know, if it doesn't, if it sets their teeth on edge, then of course, uh, you're, you need to get in another business or change your, change that's your right. style. Leave now. Leave quick. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Here's, here's something I always remember about hearing about Jim Burgess's final gig was mm-hmm. at Saints. Were you, you, were yes. there that night? you worked that night, right? No, I didn't work. I was there dancing that yeah, night. I was, dancing. you know, on the dance floor. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. And, uh, of course, uh, John Siglia was there and he, he tells a very vivid, very specific story on how it all played out. Um, I of course was experiencing it, experiencing it from the dance floor, but uh, when he played his last, what turned out to be his last song, the club was absolutely full to capacity, and it wasn't very late. I don't really remember what time it could have been six in the morning or something, which the club would have been packed, at, you know, on a Saturday night at six a.m. Uh, when he when he uh, played that song, there he is, right? Uh, and that's Eric Erickson with him, right? Yeah. So uh, when he um, when he played that song and, and he physically left the booth, walked out of the booth, uh, I told my friend Michael, who I was dancing with, I said, I, I think we really need to get out of here because I was expecting like a riot or something really ugly to, to transpire. Because here you have like hundreds or maybe thousands of people uh, totally revved up and ready for the party of the century because this is Jim Burgess retiring. And uh and he, you know, kind of walks out on people. And, and he's that, tired. <laughs> yeah, that was perceived by some as a total slap in the face uh, that, you know, you have a dance floor and you, you're turning your back on them, you know. And then, and, but, but taking it from his perspective, he said, I had already played what I've already said musically, what I want to say. And I'm finished and everything after this would be anticlimactic. So, I mean, I can appreciate both sides of the story, but as a DJ that flies in the face of my own ethics and, and values. And if there's a dance floor and they're, you know, and they're ready for more, it's, I'm obliged to. You're not going home. That's right. That's right. Many nights. <laughs> it turns out I get home in the afternoons instead of, <laughs> instead right. of the morning. You, you thought you yeah. get home six. You didn't get home till right. in the afternoon, right? Oh, oh yeah. Easily. Sure. Sure. I'm glad I was in my twenties back then. You know, I certainly it would kill me now to do it. Yeah. Well, and I remember as Burgess left the booth and walked out and you have, what, 1,200 queens on the dance floor with their mouths hanging open and all of us by or near or in the DJ booth with this, what's going on and panic before panic completely ensued. A couple of us ran up to Mark Ackerman's loft because he had an apartment on the third floor above the offices at the Saint. We grabbed every record we could lay our hands on and Sharon White started spinning. 
picking up. And then we went to Sharon's apartment and grabbed all of her records and brought them into the booth. And she finished the night, finished the party. Everybody had a wonderful time. And that was unofficially her first night performing at the Saint. Yes. Oh, one. So basically the swan leaving and here's the new, I would say, I guess. uh, Yeah, but I mean, it was literally, we were standing there looking at each other saying, did he just leave? And is he coming back? Or what happened? Sort of right. Jim Burgess ultra dramatic things, which he is certainly known to do musically. Yeah. And we half expected him to like do a pirouette at the bottom of the stairs and come back and do something fabulous because that right. would be the Jim Burgess we had expected that he was doing a big drama number. And after a while, we realized he wasn't come back. John Siglia was in the booth saying, no, you can't use his records. Right. And he quickly scurried. Is that what they said? Can't use his records? He yes. Forbid, he forbade. Yeah. Yeah. He forbade uh, anyone to touch his, his records. Yep, and, uh, and John was the guardian of, of that. Yeah. <laughs> John was the exactly. guardian. And I'm sure John probably felt pretty awkward as he retold the story to us recently. It was, yes. so, I mean, he's in this position where he says, I felt terrible. I, couldn't let them do anything. Right. I mean, talk about like being right on the edge. I mean, he could have like started playing music and become like the darling of the same, been the head DJ for forever after that. I mean, and save the night. Been lifesaver. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. But Sharon, it really did. It did uh, open the door for her. The doors like swung open and she was, uh, you know, a headliner DJ. I mean, she was, she's a legend. Prior up to that point, but I mean, this this just there made was, her like, there was discussion of Sharon getting her own night, as there mm-hmm. was also discussion of me getting my own night doing lights at that point in time. Nobody right. expected the door to swing open in that way for Sharon. I mean, we knew we were going to be playing in in the imminent future, but boy, yeah, it was all time and place, and isn't so much of life time and place, and just you know being there and having a little bit of good fortune shine. Yes. Yes. And she saved the night. Let's, let's call it what it is. Yes, I mean, absolutely. you know, you think of a full house and uh, no music. So she, to, you know. she stepped up. She was brilliant. You know, we got her enough records so that Marsh could take Jim's records out of the way. <laughs> right, right. Tell everyone how long was the music off that after Robbie, uh, after, um, Jim, it probably seemed like forever, but it probably wasn't any more than 10 or 15 minutes. That's a long time in a nightclub. That's, a, that's well, an eternity, my It was three big flights of stairs and all the way down towards Second Avenue to get up to Mark's apartment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it probably wasn't more than 15 minutes, but like it, it just dead air in a nightclub with a full house. I mean, I was gone. I was in a taxi on my way home by then. What's that? You literally left then? You, you left? Stick oh, I left. I left. I really had a bad feeling. I, I did not know how it was going to play out. And I just thought it was going to get really, really nasty or something Something bad was going to happen. You it was just a- stories brings us out. I love true house stories for this. Yeah. this so do I. I. This so is do I. Wait, so you turned to you. You said, I'm out. Yeah. Dashing for the door. Out the door you go. And there I go. Stop. Nobody knows. Oh. It was, uh, you know, I mean, if you're, I mean, most DJs that have a very acute uh, sense of like intuition and uh, 
they can read a room. And uh, yeah, I just had a, <clears throat> I just had a feeling that uh, I needed to go. Now, of course, nothing bad happened, but at the same time, my memory of that night is crystallized as a very specific part of the night. Of course, Sharon, I'm sure was wonderful, but I remember Jim's part of the night and that's all. And so that, you know, that could be special. It, it's entirely possible that it could have really gone the other way if it had been an additional 15 or 20 minutes before the first record was put on. You mm -hmm. know, you had, I think that you could get well over a thousand on that dance floor at any yeah. one time. I'm not sure what the actual capacity was, but there were a few thousand people in the club that night. Yeah. And, and you know, <laughs> And everybody was in their own little trip and their own little mind space. And they kind of needed the party to keep going for whatever reason. Um, yes. And yeah, I'm sure it could have turned quite ugly had it been, uh, had we not been able to get such quick access to a stack of records to at least begin the ball rolling. Oh yeah. It's one of those legends that, you know, now looking back on it, it's like if things hadn't played out the way they did, uh, it would have been drastically different. Very drastically, you're right. Yeah. And and if that had happened, then good call on you for getting the f home. <laughs> <laughs> right. I didn't know how it played out until I guess the next day, and I just oh, talked to somebody. Like my friends would say, "Honey, I need my sleep." <laughs> so wait, so here we go. <laughs> HIV begins, and because you know, the '80s stream on. And the club business is changing. I remember Marsha mentioning Rebel opens a Palladium. Saint is still going. Mm -hmm. And every year they send out their membership drive. What happens the last year? The last, you mean the year it closed? Yes. Well, of course, <clears throat> membership had declined and declined because uh, uh, more and more of the membership were sadly dying. You know, I mean... And back then, there was absolutely no treatment. Uh, many people went into the hospital once, and you, that was it. It was over. Uh, and um, so by 1988, the writing was kind of on the wall. They tried different alternatives. They'd opened uh, straight nights on Fridays and whatnot, and they'd added liquor to boost revenue. But it still was, uh, you know, it's a very expensive operation to run, especially something on that mammoth scale. So they had the last party, and it was decided by Bruce, who was the impresario of the club, who really was the driving creative force of the whole place. Uh, and he knew when it was time to close the curtain, and uh, he announced a massive party. It was called The Last Party. Yeah. It was to be 40 hours long, and they were bringing in – there. there's the invitation for it, which is an enormous poster. It's probably about three feet by four feet long, uh, and I have it in my bedroom, as a matter of fact. Uh, so this party was 40 hours nonstop from, I guess, Saturday, Saturday midnight till Monday noon, something like that. And, uh, 10 of the most popular DJs from the entire run of the club, uh, were booked to play. Uh, I had not worked in New York. I, I, well, I'd left New York I, with the thought of retiring from the business, but that didn't play out quite the way I planned. Uh, I couldn't stay out of the music business. So I, I returned relatively quickly because uh, too many people made offers I couldn't refuse. But uh, anyway, so I came back to New York to play the final set, uh, which was a terrific honor to be asked to 
actually closed the club and put the place to bed uh, once and for all. And uh, so that was, um, I'd say, I think that was probably 8 a.m. till noon on Monday. And you'd think it was Saturday night, New Year's Eve, of course. The place was so jam-packed. I can remember in the booth playing the records and it it felt like, or, or it looked like the turntables were doing this, were, were like bobbing up and down. <clears throat> in reality, what I found out later is that the entire dome, which is the dance floor and the, and the dome over it, that's what was moving. And the turntables were the only things that were steady because they were on a 1,500-pound concrete block some, uh, supported by pneumatic shocks. So uh, that's how crowded it was. That's how much uh, movement was going on in this place. It, I don't think I'd ever seen it that densely crowded. And, and even in spite of that, everyone, you know, not feeling crushed, feeling just wonderful harmony, which was a great aspect of that club being round and no corners. And it was just a great design, but uh, closing the club was um, of course very overwhelming. Uh, people were crying, people were hugging. Uh, it was very profound. Uh, Marlena Shaw came on after I played my last record, which was Jimmy Ruffin. <clears throat> and um it was just one of those unforgettable nights, what you'd call disco history. I mean, nothing has, nothing has matched that, um, that I've ever witnessed. Um, and, uh, yeah, very honored to have been like a, a keystone of that night. Sure. What made you leave, um, playing music? For the, okay. For, let's just uh, for a moment. What's that? For a short period. Cause it wasn't that long. No, it wasn't that long, but it was, uh, very honest with, you know, very honest and sincere intention of, of getting into a different career. Um, at the time, I'd say probably around 85 or something, 84, 85, I was like so in demand and so at the top of my game and so, uh, you know, popular and everyone was tugging at me. Um, I had observed since I first started working in the clubs that, you know, DJs have a sort of a career arc. And so many of them, probably most of them, I'd say, uh, you know, they get to a point where they peak. And then uh, after a while, you know, uh, they'd either burn out or they would get uh, disenchanted with the club business or what have you. Uh, their popularity would, would start to slip. And then suddenly, you know, what really what really kind of, you know, drove it home was that uh, Bobby DJ, Bobby Goodadaro, who was, uh, you know, one of the all-time greats um he started doing he was working at the anvil which is a great club and nothing to you know take away from the anvil it was an amazing club i i loved going there but i mean you know i thought you know how are the mighty fallen and do i want that to happen to me and i do want do i want that as part of my life story um so i wanted to i wanted to leave the business while i was at the top and that was really the driving you know motive for for uh, retiring. And uh, so I relocated back here to Florida after thinking about Houston and uh, San Francisco and several other options uh, as far as moving. And um, so I came back to South Florida and uh, um, was fully, you know, fully with the intention of uh, starting something, something completely new and having a little time to, you know, and, and money to just sort of float for a while. But the offers kept coming. And, uh, you know, the thing is, I was honest with myself after about four months or something of being idle. 
I, I said to myself, you know, there's really nothing out there that's inspiring me the way, you know, performing the way music uh, has done to me. And it's just, you know, it's just inside me that, that just drive to, to pull off an amazing night and just, you know, discover new songs and share them with the crowd. So um, that's when I kind of came to the realization that uh, music was my destiny. So I got back into it and I started working pretty much a, a residency at Trocadero. Um, and I was being flown out like every Friday and working every Saturday night for about six months. And um, by then I knew that, you know, I was going to, I was going to do this pretty much permanently. Um, and uh, so I started working at the Copa in Fort Lauderdale, got a, a residency there for until they sold the club actually. And um, I worked there in Key West and then I'd go back to Fire Island every summer uh, and, you know, fast forward to present day. Now, of course, you know, COVID, not to mention COVID or anything, but before up till that point, uh, I've been keeping busy um, doing, you know, doing the music business. And on top of all that, I have had 10 years uh, for Sirius XM. So I'm just about to celebrate my 10th anniversary there with a weekly broadcast. And I never even had a residency that lasted 10 years. <laughs> you know, thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Very excited about that. And, and it's really great to, to kind of open up my, my exposure um, because, you know, working in a club, you have a few thousand or a special event, a few thousand people uh, that get to hear you. But now I'm coast to coast. And, uh, and since I'm not working for a dance floor, particularly, I can, I can include music that is, um, you know, not necessarily floor fillers, you know, and, but at the same time, educate, you know, the, the audience as to how amazing uh, and how broad spectrum disco was and dance music just everywhere, you know, and uh, that's what keeps, you know, such a challenge uh, on the radio. It's, it, and it's still so much fun. I mean, my God, I put together a show uh, for next week and it starts out actually with uh, Mary, Wil Mary Wilson because in honor of her passing, but uh, it's down tempo for the most part. And it, it's just all over the place. But at the same time, it's got a very specific flow, and it, it it really came out great. Awesome. Well, that's great. No, I, I've checked out the shows. They're really great. And I also heard you live, so I know how well you play. That's <laughs> Thank you. Glass. When I well, you can't be you can't be really great unless you had some really awful nights, also to uh, to better. balance it out. Right. That? That's what makes you a better DJ when you learn to figure out. Okay, wasn't a little bit. Tonight, but we'll, yeah. get, we'll get through. We're going to do that again. <laughs> we'll, we'll get through it together, right? Exactly. What's going on in your mind? That's the thing. See, people don't understand that they don't think you have issues or problems going on, or you're angry with the ownership of the club. Lord knows what's going on, and you got to be all smiles, and you got to yeah. play at your best. Yes, and yes. Not all the time we feel that way. I'll tell you though. I mean, I've I've seen DJs that that do uh, manifest their personal feelings onto their audience, onto their dance floor, and I'm like aghast. It's like, okay, so you're having a bad night, honey. I'm sorry, but you know, you're hired to entertain these people. They don't deserve it. Whatever you know, if you're in a snit about something, or the manager stiffed you, or whatever, uh, you know, sorry, that doesn't. It's you know, it's 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 show business, and if you're on Broadway. 
you're playing eight shows a week and no ifs, ands, or buts. And it's the same in a club as far as I'm concerned. I have a very strong work ethic. If I'm booked to work, you know, spin, I'm going to be there. I'm not going to miss it. And I'm not going to give a half-assed, you know, second-rate show. You're exactly right. We are the right. performers. We are the artists. And it's showtime. And you go on. Right. Our job right. is to give everyone a good time. You know, and, and if we're not having a good time, we're not giving them a good time. And if you bring your misery with you to work, then how can you exude joy and fun? You have to, you know, and I, and I must say, Robbie, all right, I have always had fun working with you. And that is, I think, one of the key elements for me as a lighting person, because, yeah, I'd see it musically and you do have a lot more forgiveness in doing lighting than you do in playing music and having mm -hmm. DJed. I can tell you it's very hard to time a bathroom break if you're DJing <laughs> and much easier if you're doing lights, just right. as an example. Um, but the rapport that one has in the booth, the chemistry that we have, the interaction that we have as artists in the booth working, that also goes out to the floor. And, and oh, yes. with artists, even more important than getting the paycheck at the end of the week is the feeling of satisfaction that you've not only had a good time, you've given all these other people a good time. And there's nothing like seeing a room of a thousand people all smiling, all having joy, all having fun in unison on one energy plane. And, and there's that that's a sense of satisfaction that money just can't buy. It's a joy. Absolutely. If your heart's in this business and, and the three of us right here, and I'm sure many that are listening and watching, uh, if your heart's in your work, then there are no excuses. And, you know, there is no second best or I'll try harder next time. Yeah, it's it's kind of that's your default setting. And it, it's, I've been very lucky to work with you so much and at different venues with a different, you know, different formats going on and also, you know, special events that, uh, you know, we do have such good chemistry, you and I, um, that we've built on all these years that, you know, it's, it's special. It's very special. Totally. Indeed. Indeed. I, I find that, I mean, if I have to, I get up every morning and I express my gratitude to the universe for giving me this joy and these blessings to have had a great career, to have had great friends, to have had friends that have lasted not days or months, but literally decades. I mean, yeah. Robbie, we were both, what, 21 and 22 when we met or something silly yeah, like that? Right. And you're yeah. 29 now. That's, you know, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, you know, and, and that's the music that does that. I'm being serious now. We've you known each other eight years, right, Masha? So I say what? We've known each other eight years. Eight years, indeed. Yeah. Eight, yeah. Wonderful 800 years, years of technology there, right between these two. But check yeah. it out. The music you never uh, are, you never get old with the music. That's no, the, yeah. no, no. Your no, brain no. is still saying we can do this. It's crazy. I know. Yeah, I, energy flows, and a probably not so very well known fact about Mr. Robbie Leslie High Energy. He is one of the most astute, well versed R and B music fans of just about any DJ I know. I've ever worked with, and he will pull out. I mean, he took up where Roy left off when it came to pulling out some old classic R&Bs. Very high praise indeed. Thank you. Um, you know, my, yeah, I definitely, there's, there's uh, some of my blood definitely is black. I'm sure of it because 
Yeah, I definitely. How does that go from that to being Mr. High Energy? That's what I know, right? right? That's, that's the, you go, that's what the how that happen? You can play like, a, if you can play a long set, you can cover all your bases. I mean, you really can. Uh, and, uh, oh God, I mean, man, there's, there's some, there's some songs that give me goose flesh, you know, that, uh, that I hear that by real, like really soul artists and R&B artists that, I mean, nothing can touch it. And, you know, you can get that kind of response like late at night by playing one of those records uh, that matches any, any hit, any ABBA record you can play in the middle of the night, you know, since you brought up Play All Your Love on me. You just get that high energy at eight o'clock in the morning when people are stomping to, you know, the four tops. Right. Right. Yeah. I still love Motown. I mean, to this day, uh, I I was driving home from my shot, which I still don't have any side effects. Thank God. Um, Chinese yet? I'm surprised you're not speaking Chinese. It, it takes a number. It takes a number of hours. You yeah. might get a sore arm come uh-huh. morning time, but it takes about four or five. But then we caught you before that happens because I don't know if you're going to want to talk after. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I was listening to um, uh, Papa was a Rolling Stone. It came on my my serious uh, channel uh, driving home, and it was like I still get this visceral response to some of that old, wonderful old Motown song, you know, music, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, one of my catchphrases is never underestimate the power of music. And I so firmly believe that um, it just, first of all, it, it, it evokes memories for, for each individual that are completely unique. But also it's the closest thing we have to a time machine. Uh, you can hear a song that can instantly take you back to a club and a person and a, a, a season or, you know, love affair. Um, so many, so many different things. And, and really just in an instant, it can transport you mentally to that, to that time. Uh, music does that. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. Universal language. Yeah. Yeah. And really, you know, I mean, it, it, you're right. Music is the one thing that can just pluck at your heart springs and pick up emotions that you have long forgotten about just by, connecting that little memory um, yeah and and you know i remember so many songs from the 60s listening to on the am radio in the car with my parents and stuff and it just amazes me how many of them i remember the words to <laughs> yeah like holy moly but it, it it music just you know it can put a smile on your face or it can make you cry it's mm-hmm. it's a special special um emotion evoking mechanism and yeah and also i know that music has they've done studies uh those with the dementia and alzheimer's um music seems to have this power over all other faculties uh to the brain um that will reach places that other things drugs or other therapies can't reach and i think that's pretty amazing so that kind of reinforces what i said also with some animals. Yes. 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 Mine is right off camera, right here. Yeah, I can't right hear here. I don't see him. <laughs> oh, you do? Okay. <laughs> and where is he? There he is. Yeah, there he is. Yeah. Bobby, we noticed that also you're very proud of, of car collecting and re- restoration work. I know. Yeah. That. Um, well, what's going yeah. on there? Uh, 
I've always had a classic car in my life since uh, since high school. Um, I bought a 58 Cadillac back in 1973 that I kept for a long time, like 16, 17 years. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just loved the design of older cars, uh, particularly of the 50s and 60s. Um, now I have a 67 Cadillac convertible. It's great having a convertible. It's the first convertible I've owned. And uh, I've had this now for 30, 31 years. I bought it in 1990. Um, but yeah, it's just great. I mean, I, I love Detroit styling from that period. I mean, the cars were not necessarily safe, but they looked fantastic. Safety um, was not first on the list. It was right. <laughs> no, it's all about styling. Yeah, lots of chrome. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hobby. It's a, like a pastime. It, it is, unfortunately, it's rather costly, but oh, um, it gives me a lot of pleasure. And uh, yeah, I just love, uh, I love, you know, having, having it to toy around with. Uh, so yeah, that's one of my, one of my little passions. Yeah. Something I wanted to, it's been on my mind. I'm going to ask you before we go. When you first started from 12 West, you auditioned to where you are today. Did you ever dream that all of us would be trotting around the globe mm. playing this music? That we do. I had no idea it would reach the scope that it has. And uh, certainly the, the directions it's taken, um, if you, you know, the fact that, that mainstream clubs no longer operate on a, like a, you know, weekly schedule, but special events are so off the charts as far as size and dynamics and, and technology, and uh, that people will travel you know, take jet planes and travel long distances to attend these events. Uh, no, would never, would never have really seen that progression except in the slow and methodical terms that it has taken over the decades. Um, I'm very grateful that I got to see it and experience it in its infancy and uh, from both sides of the booth, uh, on the dance floor particularly and, and in the booth. Um, and, uh, of course, there's nothing like a residency you know, uh, these big parties, you know, being hired to do these enormous events are, is great. But, um, you know, you don't develop the friendships with the staff and you don't you don't have a core audience that you're, you know, kind of kind of keying into. Uh, but, yeah, very grateful for the ride I've been on all these years and certainly happy and blessed that I've been uh, able to support myself for, God, 40 years. You know, incredible. Incredible. You know, one thing I forgot to ask you was because Marsha filmed in a lot of the Studio 54 stuff. People know you played. Which nights were you playing on when you were in studio? I did studio on basically on Thursdays and Sundays for either John Blair or Michael Fesco. I occasionally worked on the week, Fridays or Saturdays, but more as a fill-in. And uh, I actually spanned, I mean, I when I started there, Steve was still coming, although he was no longer um, like uh, legally like the owner of the place, but he was still the major influence. So, I mean, I had him and his entourage in the, in the DJ booth early on that would drive me crazy. Uh, I just don't know how these other DJs put up with such silliness. Like, you know, uh, it just was nuts. I, I remember Halston was, would always get in front of my records and I could never get around him 
So what are you trying to do? You're trying to, Paulson, move the F out of the way? You can't say that. You want to say I'm a New England boy. I would never dare say that to him. So, you know, but, but, uh, you know, it was so distracting. And I'm, I'm I'm like, I take this very seriously. So the next record has got to be the perfect choice. If it's not the perfect choice, if it's the second perfect choice, you know, that's not good enough. Um, but, uh, so I worked for, for Steve kind of moving out and moving on. And then I worked with Mike, Mark Fleischman. And then at the end, uh, Frank Cashman, who was a front man for, uh, I think most people think the mob, uh, or organized, you know, crime in some way. Uh, he was the, the third, uh, iteration of the club. And so I kind of spanned all those three and, uh, Marsha, I remember saying that there's nothing like the initial, you know, Studio 54 version one. And that's absolutely true. But they each had their own magic and, and the club still had a, a incredible cachet uh, when, you know, at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, without a doubt, that has opened more doors for me uh, professionally uh, than any other gig. The Saint, Saint, so many people have no clue what it is or what it was. Uh, it's only a very specialized, you know, people really into nightlife. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Studio 54. for. Well, I for, said the same thing you know. because I came in in the Cashman end when they brought Larry in and they had Louis Vega and Freddie Bastone. I was playing there for Bear Jones. So I understand. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wait I didn't have the Richard Long sound system. I had the Claire Brothers sound system that sounded like a radio in the place. So I was like. I didn't realize this. They removed the old sound system? Moved, by the time they brought Larry and they had the Claire Brothers sound, well, word had it, the system did a disappearing act. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was those? a big word that the mafia, well, the mafia was involved, money was laundered, all kinds of stuff. But you mentioned Frank Cashman. Okay, so yes. by the time we get in there, it's already Claire Brothers sound. Yeah. The booth has a glass around it. It's not. Oh, wow. Good. Yeah. Yeah. My gosh. Oh, yeah. And do you yeah. remember, like, what year roughly that would be? 87, 88, around that time. And okay, yeah. yeah I, left, I left New York uh, November of 86. Yeah, yeah. so right after yeah. you. So I remember I got in, I got, I, I worked, in those days, I worked for Bear Jones. He was a promoter, had sure. a following around New York, and I was his DJ. So make a long story short, they put the glass up, all that stuff. The Richard Long RLA sound system abortioned, gone, and wow. then the Claire Brothers. It sounds like a big ass radio in the place. So you know how that system sounded. You remember? The yeah. Did not sound like that when, when no, no. Well, to this day, I think the hearing on my right ear is slightly diminished because of that horn that Richard yeah. had, like literally right there, because it was fastened to the balcony, right. you know, edge. And uh, I I didn't need monitor speakers because that thing was so damn loud. But of course, yeah. you can't turn it off. It's no. there for the night, you know. Yeah, we had an RLA sound system at the Palladium. Yes, that's right. That's right. That was a magnificent club. My God, so beautiful. Yeah, really I love working there. But that was the last RLA system in New York. Really, last installation. Yeah, last. Oh. I believe it was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Any yeah. Kenny Powers, mm -hmm. Kenny Powers mm -hmm. on that line. Kenny Powers, right. Kenny Powers, and was it Austin? Derek Austin? Oh, Austin, yeah. I yeah. think so. Austin, yes. Austin, yeah. Austin Green? Yeah. Austin's not here in Florida. I 
connected with him a number of years ago. Yeah, he was part of Richard's last last stand, and then Richard died. Well, Michael Brody died from Garage. Richard Long died from from RLA. They were all dying. Bruce Mailman, I think, mm-hmm. right around yeah, too. not too long after this, all the great club owners were dying and sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It really kind of was the final nail in the coffin. But I mean, culturally, New York City was, as you were saying earlier, New York back in those days was like the Wild West to some degree. And uh, now, of course, rents being what they are and, and real estate, you know, I mean, you just it just is not a viable way to use space on Manhattan Island anymore, really. Um, but culturally, you know, everything changes. You can't, you cannot turn back the clock and you can't pretend that you know if you open a club it would be packed it's just you know those days have changed well, and, uh, that may change soon and okay. everyone's dying to go out again now because now they can't go out i'm it's open late. to it I'll, I'll take what comes sure the politics of the day also changed in the late 80s because after 86 you had a lot more of aids that was going around you had giuliani that was now coming in you had the after hours places that were being busted you had all of this fear most of it around aids but you know it was the cause of everything and so you had this very anti nightclub uh large establishment movement um you know palladium was i think the lar- the last of the biggies the big dance places in the city as well and and you know peter gation gave up the limelight to go run Palladium after my tenure there ended in like 91. So, you know, it kind of evolved and moved, but I think that the politics of the late eighties changed nightlife more than anything. And that, that freedom, that abandonment, that, that Renaissance wild west that we had, Mm -hmm. I think that ended by the mid eighties and yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The times when you could go, to four different types of venues in the course of one night and have four different, completely different cultural experiences all within the one city. I mean, Manhattan was an amazing, amazing place. Well, you know what, to add to your thing, Marsha, it really was when the bathhouses closed. That was really the big change. When Koch closed- Well, that was concurrent. That was definitely concurrent in the the same time, Lenny. It all kind of happened around the same time. Um, You know, you had the bathhouses closing. You had the big mega clubs that were being shut down. You had Giuliani, who was was knocking down everything. And, and, you know, it it was just not cool. Uh, And that was the late 80s. And I remember that my club resume in the 80s and the 90s, it, it couldn't get me, it would get me arrested before it would get me a job. It was a good thing I was able to segue into special events mm-hmm. and then get in, involved in what became architainment, but actually entertainment, lighting, and architecture. Uh, I couldn't get arrested with the club resume I had. It wasn't until 54 celebrated, I guess it's 20 or 25th anniversary, that it became cool again that right. I had right. a club You're right. Yeah. There's definitely been a resurgence uh, in interest in disco and, and very well deserved. I mean, it's not just because I happen to love it, uh, the, you know, all the different formats of, of disco. But, um, you know, I mean, the creativity that went into that stuff. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, it's it's amazing. It's really impressive. And uh, 
so much musicianship is involved. We're talking about session players. We're talking about vocalists, arrangers, uh, even right down to mastering the vinyl discs. Um, you know, I mean, it was just a well, you know, I, I, pinnacle. I, I, I can tell you working with the Joe Long sound on the productions that we did, we utilized for Hallelujah 2000, the London Philharmonic to do all of the orchestra places. We right. did the rhythm tracks. We did those in New York. We brought in the sound of Philadelphia rhythm section. Uh-huh. Um, who did we have doing over percussion la- overlays? Peter Whitehead, Peter Davis, Peter Whitehead, one of the writers of the original Village People material, and they were background percussionists on all the Jacques Lorelli productions. You know, we had Luther Vandross as a background singer. We were in the studio doing our productions, and the next studio over was Ashford and Simpson doing Diana Ross and the Candy Staten and their own album. And you had such an interconnection. You had, you know, musicians that would go from one session to another. I mean, no one knew who Luther Vandross was. Wait, wait, I got to tell you, then. She's talking about Hollywood 2000 on Casablanca Records. The, own, the owner of Neil, Neil Bogart was the owner of this label. She's talking about another historical moment. I'm going, she's not telling you the other part. She's just telling you how they're jumping and doing this. Casablanca was a big driving force to the disco thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I don't know yeah. if better than that. Sounds well, like Casablanca, West End. So was Atlantic Records. Like yeah. Atlantic had a huge disco division. Almond Artigan was huge. In fact, the first record we did, Midnight Rhythm, was on Atlantic. That's right. To yeah. Bobby's point about all the collaboration and all the interconnectivity and all of the artistry that went on. I mean, there was an amazing bed of creativity. There was ingenuity that that you had the freedom to come up with. I know. When we did My Baby's Baby at Sigma Sound Studios, we wanted a sound effect. And the only way we got it was by shooting off a fire extinguisher. For that (laughs) recording session, we wasted every single fire extinguisher within the Sigma Studios because we needed that effect. And that's what we got it from. Um, You know, we had all kinds of ridiculous things in the studio to get the clang on working and slaving. It was chains in water. We put chains on top of the keys, the strings and the piano to get the clankety clankety of, of the, the, the piano. I mean, you know, and, and it was wonderful because that's what you did in the studio. Part of it was almost like a folly studio where you would use whatever you could to get what you wanted out of the artist or out of that production. It's like innovation. Innovation was very, was very hot and and you know people were creative i mean creativity just was off the charts yeah and also the ones that are very creative like the jazz musicians are like disco oh god no i ain't doing that right they and were- yet one of my favorite old records was by richard t who was like a, a jazz legend i mean there's so many herbie hancock my god you know say, they've all dabbled well. yeah yeah Chuck, you know on and on there's a lot of crossover look let's face it good music is good music Period end. If it's got to right. be dance to it, period end. That's right. Yeah. That's said it all. Yeah. She pretty yeah. much summed that up. But yo, guys, <laughs> incredible. Incredible. I can't, I can't thank you enough. And everybody's just blown away to hear all these great things. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for my crazy schedule today. Who would have thought my shot would have taken six hours to like. You're lucky. You got it. Cycle. What? You're lucky you got it today. 
Well, yeah, I'm very lucky. And yeah, I've, I've been waiting for a long time. And, and so, yes, yeah, very grateful for sure. And, and yeah. you've got one more. And I must say, I'm very happy to say that I got both of mine. And I yeah. passed my incubation period. And I think I'm now fully immune. So here's, here's our PSA from True House Stories. Get your shot, everybody. Yes. Don't mess up. And even if I don't want to take my shot, I'm going to have no choice because I ain't going to be able to travel to go play anywhere. Oh, if- that's right. Right, you have that documentation. Passport, right? Same with you. Yeah. I'm going to be looking. Uh, Robbie, show us your passport with the QC code. Right. Scan, right? (laughs) That's right. So there you have it. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, if if that's what it takes to get us back to some semblance of normalcy, if that's what it takes to get us to have live events, um, to yeah, Marsha, we need the live events. I'm dying without it. I mean, I, this is what we do. This is what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, people, I mean, just humanity needs live events. I mean, it's intrinsic in our, in our DNA. I mean, we've been deprived for over a year now. It's, uh, and it's showing, I mean, you know, uh, across the board. Um, yeah, it's just, it's the nature of, of humankind to, to interact and be close together and meet new people and, and socialize. And, um, you know, that's, I think not having it for a year has really brought it home, like how important it is, even though it's, it seems subtle, but at the same time, it's, it's absolutely essential. I would like to think at the end of the day, it's made us a more thoughtful, kinder society, uh, yeah. knowing what we have missed and how important not just the human contact, but the art aspect of it, the joy mm-hmm. aspect of it, yeah. the, the little things. There's only yeah. so much you get from uh, from from the virtual contact. Oh, I hate it. So, I can't even stand we're even doing this. Marsh, I can't even stand. I mean, I love interviewing. Don't get me wrong, everyone. But you do very well. You do very well. I saw Robbie or Bobby. I would be hugging them. We all yeah. kiss each other. And this is what this is about. And mm-hmm. I miss that with the music, but just seeing all of you together. And yeah. we all do, but think about it. If I get away 20 <laughs> years ago, we wouldn't have the technology to do this. No. Yeah. Well, how yeah. fortunate we are that our technology has given us a place where we can still be connected in this horrific year of disconnect. Yeah. Absolutely. When Zoom came out with this feature with the flicking of the cameras, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to give this a roll. Let's give yeah. it a shot. And so far, I like how it's going. It's really this is heaven sent. It really is. The timing is amazing. God, I mean, God yeah. sent this at the right time. I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll sign up for this. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So we're well, going to keep hearing you every week on the radio, religiously through satellite radio. That would be great. I, I, I'm so grateful that the people are very interested and, and are very faithful listeners uh, every Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern and 6 p.m. Pacific. Oh, Robbie, coast why, coast. Why, doesn't they let, why don't they let you speak at all? Um, actually, I started out 10 years ago doing voiceovers at the beginning and at the end of my shows. And because the other two DJs, they wanted a uniform program for the three nights of like uh, mixed music. Um, each night, Tony, Tony, uh, John, and myself, um, they decided to drop, you know, drop the intro and outro format. 
And um, I'll tell you, I used to labor over the, the two or three minute intros trying to be Casey Kasem and outros that I would spend like hours scripting. Doing and that, right? Doing that. What's that? Doing the, uh, the intro and then running. Right, exactly. And never yeah. satisfied and like doing retakes and retakes. Uh, so I have a great deal of respect for people that can do on air speaking and, you know, keep it going and keep it uh, interesting and, and flow and not stutter and not uh, hem so, and haw through the whole thing. So write you on this, this new app called Clubhouse that's, that's through Apple. Can you, would you join it? Because this is the new thing now. And actually it's like being on forums and you could speak in panels. It's incredible. Clubhouse. Yes. Do Apple. It is huge. I will look into it. And Thank we're going to be doing a true house stories, wrap up shows. And we'd love to have you on. Cause you know what happens? People can come up, put their hand up and you can see on the phone, you have to have an iPhone Right, and they can ask you questions, and you can and answer. Like they, uh, they probably want to ask questions from this show that they sure. would love to be able to say, "Robbie, can we ask you, please?" No, <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Yeah, that's a great, a great inclusion format. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, cool. Clubhouse, it is. And and Marsha, same with you, because both of you, I've said it. It's like the reference library of dance, disco, everything, lights to music. Right there, you two have it all. God, it's, it's really interesting. Like it, you know, for, to my way of thinking, Studio Fifty Four is not that ancient history. I mean, it's you know, it's within my generation, uh, and yet on social media, I will hear these tall tales and like things that are like so wrong and so untrue. Uh, and I just, of course, I don't have the time to correct them all, <laughs> or you know. <laughs> And I don't well, want to start any punch, but, you know, some people just have no clue what it was like. Uh, and it's kind of too bad. And, and I know nightlife is, is a is a kind of a private thing. It's nighttime and people are doing their own personal things. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, I, I would hate to hear that history be kind of warped or or lost over time because it, it, it was and remains to be, you know, just incredible. One more time. That's why I created the program True House Stories to clean up this thing. And we thank you. We need to hear you. I, I went after certain people because they don't get to hear you, Robbie. They don't get to hear Marsha's story like this. Right. And that's true. I mean, we, we're silent. We, we let our music and life speak for us. And that's not exact. That's not totally who we are. That's a facet of who we are. But so it's great to, to have this forum, to, to be able to kind of flesh out the real people behind, you know, the names. Yeah. It's been, it's been fun sharing all the stories and the little anecdotes. And, you know, we've, we've really scratched the surface of all of the wonderful little bits and pieces that are out there. But it's, just, it's been just a delight to share some of the inside track with the yeah. audience to give them a taste of maybe for the younger folks, what it was like to be in this moment of ecstasy without the passion or the pain or with the passion, but without the pain um, <laughs> back in the seventies and, and, you know, to share the stories and to try to keep the spirit alive because you can't really recreate the era that has passed, but certainly you can do your best to keep it revived, to keep that legacy going. Um, you know, I know Robbie and I are both fond of forties music. And I don't think that either of us 
could imagine what it would be like to be in the time of the Roaring Twenties or be in the time of the heyday of the Forties with, you know, Glenn Miller and 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 the Gershwins and all of that. But we have our own memories of what it was like in the seventies to be at the peak of the renaissance of New York nightlife. And I think yeah. probably nightlife in general, most nightlife was fashioned after New York nightlife as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and this, right. this has been fun. It's been great to tell the stories. It's been great to tell a few behind the scenes on before heretofore unknown tidbits. And saving all totally, totally. For the next ever grateful and thank you to both of you for spending your time with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. It's been great. It's been great fun. We'll do a part two in a year or so, but hopefully by then we'll be we'll all be in the same room. Yeah, that would be awesome. Right. Maybe the show can really picked up. You never know. Right. Fantastic. Thank you. Have a great. This has been great. Thank you. Guys, you. I, I'm like sitting here going, oh my God, wonderful stuff. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Lee. Thank, you. Thank you for kisses, yeah. hugs, the whole deal. And good luck to both of you. We will be seeing more of you. I know Thank I'm you. getting over till it's over, Robbie. And Thanks so much. All right. My dog is so happy he gets to go out now. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Good night around the world. Right. Next week. Don't forget. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you, Marsha. Take care, everyone. Good night from True House Stories. See you. Peace, love.